Well, thanks so much for having me. It's great to be back. It's great to be here. I love coming here even when I'm not talking. Um, it's great to be welcomed to be part of this family when we're down here in, in, in Robertson. Uh, when Graham asked me to speak, he asked me to speak on Christ alone, and I thought, yes, you ripper, you beauty, because we're touching on some really important stuff. When Martin Luther and his friends were rediscovering the truths of Christ, historians have looked back and they've said, oh, look, if you, if you have a think about what they understood, they understood a whole bunch of things by themselves, that is, alone. They understood that we are saved uh, by, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That we learn all about this from scripture alone and all of this occurs for the glory of God alone. And so those five solas or alones have become rallying cries for understanding the Reformation. And so every time there's an anniversary of the Reformation or there's World Youth Day from the Catholic Church or whatever it happens to be, it's great to dust off these great truths. One of the dangers that I found over the years is that because historically the problem was with the Roman Catholic Church, which you might remember I, I grew up in, um, it's easy to then go and engage in a good bit of Catholic bashing, you know. They got it wrong, they still get it wrong, they still hold on to these wrong doctrines. But my experience is we're actually in danger um, of holding on to something other than Christ for our salvation in our churches here and now. Uh, the society that we live in throws up all sorts of pressures to say, no, this is what's going to keep you safe. This is what you need to hold on to. This is what's most important. So at the very end, I'll talk about that rather than the historical stuff that um, can be left for someone else. Would you please pray with me that we can understand this passage clearly? Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege of studying your word this morning, for, for discovering exactly what Christ has done for us in order to save us. Help us to understand what he's done, how important it is, how effective it is, how it impacts our life. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, it won't surprise my wife, at least, and probably any of you who know me, to tell you that I hate cleaning. Um, I, was, I was just in Graham's office just then, and man, I was impressed. Is he like that at home? It's so clean in there. Oh, that's <laughs> Of course it is. Kiralee, your office is spectacular. It's, it's amazing. I mean, it's clean, it's, everything's in, in place, and... But that office also illustrates why I hate cleaning, because Kiralee's got it so right. Everything's absolutely spectacular. But while we are sitting here, it's getting dirty. <laughs> There's dust growing in there. There are germs that are being born and are multiplying in there, which is why Kiralee spends part of her week keeping things clean and tidy, because the whole point of cleaning is not actually to be effective and keep things truly clean. The point is to keep the worst of the vermin and the germs and the other stuff, the nasty stuff that makes us sick, at bay. Cleaning is useful, but it's not totally effective. And the same can be said for the old sacrificial system that God himself set up. Hebrews is very concerned about this old sacrificial system because Hebrews is really trying to say, hey, what Jesus did was what the old sacrificial system was trying to tell us about. What Hebrews did, what, what Jesus did was do it right. Do it right the first time so you don't need to repeat it. 
And so the reason why you can say the old sacrificial system where you, you slaughtered a lamb and, or, a, or a bull and that bull died in place of, of you for the death you needed to die was, well, the, the reason why that wasn't truly effective was because, as it says in chapter 10, verse 1, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming and not the realities themselves. I've always found that a massively powerful image because, you know, we've got these wonderful lights here and you, you have the shadow. And what does the shadow do? It provides a, an outline. You get an idea of what the thing actually is, but there's no detail. And often shadows are out of proportion. You've all had fun as kids or perhaps as adults seeing the sun behind you and seeing just how tall you can be with the shadow coming behind you. Maybe that's just me. But, you know, shadows are out of proportion, but they provide a useful outline. The whole idea of a bull dying in your place for your sin told you some very important things in outline. It told you that sin is serious. Someone has to die. It told you that forgiveness is costly. There is the shedding of blood. The old sacrificial system, for that reason, was very useful because it helps you understand Jesus better. But it isn't the reality. There's nothing quite like shining the light on the actual thing so that you can see it in all of its detail. And the best indication that the law was only a shadow and not the reality of them itself was because when you did the sacrifice, you kept having to repeat it. Now, someone even more spectacular than Kirillie in cleaning up that office was actually Job. He had the whole sacrificial thing sorted out. He had ten kids, and every morning he would slaughter one animal for each of his kids and sacrifice, have a burnt offering for each of them, just to cover whatever sins they had covered the previous day, whether they knew about them or not. Now, he was the richest man in the East, so slaughtering ten animals a day wasn't a problem for him as it would have been for some others. But that was what he felt was necessary in order to keep sin at bay. Now, I would be a lot happier about cleaning if when I cleaned, it just stayed that way. Like you clean it and it's done. And when your kid messes, if you clean the floor and your two-year-old goes and accidentally spills the milk just after you've cleaned it, like, oh, that's okay, it's still clean. Not a problem. It's, it wouldn't be anywhere near as frustrating otherwise. The sacrificial system, by needing to be repeated, was a problem. But as Hebrews 10 goes on to say, Christ's sacrifice, the one sacrifice of Christ, was sufficient for salvation. So as Paul goes, as, as well, we don't know if it's Paul, but as the author goes on to explain the problems with the sacrificial system, he goes on to say, in verse 10 and by that will that will of God we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all day after day every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again he offers the same sacrifices that can never take away sins but when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins he sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. Because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. 
by dying on the cross, Jesus sacrificed himself in our place. He could do that because he didn't sin. If he had sinned, then he would have died for his own sin. And we know that his work was effective because he rose from the dead. Death has only come into this world because of sin. We know that from Genesis chapter 3. We know that from the fall. But if there is no sin, there is no death, which is why death couldn't keep its hold on him. One sacrifice, completely effective. There is no need to repeat it. There is no point in repeating it. And the, the impact of that is huge because as a result... We have confidence before God. As it says in verse 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, opened for us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great high priest in the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. What does all that mean? There's a reference there to the most holy place. In the temple, in the tent of meeting and then in the temple, there were three major sections. There was the public section everyone could go into. Then there was the section for the priests to do their sacrifice. Only the Jews and generally the priests could go in there. And um, then... At the very back was a box known as an ark which contains the Ten Commandments written by the finger of God himself and a few other fancy bits as well. And you couldn't go there. That box, that ark was surrounded by five curtains, one after the other, so it would have been about yay thick. And the only person who could go in there was the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement um, and before he could go in there, he had to slaughter a cow to cover his own sins. And tradition, a tradition later emerged that the high priest would wear a great big rope with a bell attached to it so that if he had entered the most holy place and he had indeed died for his sins, he could be dragged back out because nobody else could dare go in there or they would die. Our sin separates us from God in such a massive fashion and that was a beautifully visual way of demonstrating that um, in my last church uh, when he was about Tashi's age I would be you know a little bit worried about you know just what a rat bag he could be because you know he's he was two or three and by definition they're rat bags I think but I was talking about it with one of the the wise old saints there and she was I was saying oh look you know he's always mucking up for me and she said well that's a good thing Paul it's a good thing that he feels free to do that with you because that means he is secure in your love if he wasn't secure in your love he wouldn't dare muck up for you because he'd be too scared when I think of that I contrast that with something I did when I was in year four I was um for some reason, I got in trouble with a teacher by the name of Miss Kennedy. Um, I cannot remember what I said to her, but her response was, you will write me a letter of apology and you will give it to me tomorrow. Now, I had a problem. What I do recall is I didn't feel sorry. So how am I going to write down a letter? Do I lie and say I'm sorry? Or do I 
um, do I not produce the letter? So I came up with what I thought was a really classy solution. Dear Miss Kennedy, I apologise, but I am not sorry. Yours sincerely, Paul Brigden. Well, that went down like it. That, was, that went down a treat. Um, my recollection is that she um, swelled up like a bullfrog and said, you will see me at recess tomorrow. And I left that encounter scared. Uh, so scared that I didn't turn up at recess the next day. Now, as, as, as God would have it, I left the school at the end of that week for reasons that I would just like to stress had absolutely nothing to do <laughs> with Miss Kennedy. Um, but there was, it, was, it was term four when I left and there were six weeks of the term to go and, and I was involved in this, this program with the, the school and so my dad kindly took my sister and I back the night before. We'd sleep over, overnight in our old house which hadn't been rented out yet and I'd go to school. And one of those, one of those Thursdays, one lunchtime, the normal teacher on duty wasn't there. Guess who was on duty? Miss Kennedy. Now, the way lunch worked back then was that we would uh, go off as a group off-site to a playground about 50 or 100 metres down the road that the, the high school had, and they let us use that. And so when I saw Miss Kennedy, well, she walked at the front of the line, and guess where I was? Far back as possible, hoping I didn't see it. And then when we got into the playground, she was halfway up, and I was sneaking trying to make sure she didn't see me. And I stayed in the very far back corner. And when she rang the bell at the end of lunch, got together and I was very slow. And she started walking up and I was staying as far behind as possible. I couldn't look her in the eye. Because for whatever I had done, there was unfinished business between us and my sin had separated the two of us so that I could not look at her without fear. Now, would that be the case as an adult? Probably not. But I think we all know those relationships where things are awkward or things are difficult because of stuff that has occurred between us. Sin massively separates us from God. But here we're told that because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, we can go through that thick curtain into the most holy place with confidence and have a chat. We can do so knowing that our consciences have been cleansed, that our sins have been removed, that there is no longer any barrier between us and God and we can be as comfortable with God as my kids are with me. Well... Pretty close to. We need to be a bit more respectful, but isn't it amazing? Isn't it amazing to know that we can approach God because our sins have been taken away because Christ's sacrifice on our behalf was effective for every single one of us. So we are told in verse 23, verses 23 to 25 to hold on to Jesus because he is our hope. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. 
the rest of the passage is really looking at the contrast. And it's, verse 26 does cause us a little bit of problems because it says there, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice of sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Now, I don't think that means that because we've become a Christian, the next time we sin, well, we've kept on sinning and therefore we've got this fearful expectation of judgment. No, Christ's sacrifice was effective for all time. I think what it's talking about is what happens if we give up the hope that we have in Christ altogether. That is, look, if things are hard for you as a Christian, for whatever reason, you might be tempted to go, no, this isn't for me, Jesus isn't for me, it's so much easier not being involved. And if you're at Burrowang, I'll talk about why it's so much easier not being a Christian. But it's the alternative to not following Jesus, to giving up on him, having already heard the gospel and accepted it, is that fearful expectation of judgment. Because we have given up on the one sacrifice of sins that is actually effective for everyone for all time. So the author here is urging us to stick with Jesus no matter how hard it gets. And so for the rest of the passage he's talking about, you remember how hard it was. So verse 32, remember those earlier days after you had received the light when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood aside, stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathised with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. Can you imagine how that would go down in Sydney? Because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. You've been through the hard times, Hebrews. So don't throw away your confidence verse 35 it will be richly rewarded we can hear the gospel we can say that's great but there is the temptation to go you know what that doesn't work in this hard time or in this suffering that I'm going now it's still here well we aren't actually promised that we will be immune from suffering or free from its presence we are promised that God will get us through it and what we have in Jesus is a sacrifice for sin that is so effective that every sin in the past, in the present and in the future is covered and taken care of. So we are urged not to throw away that hope because otherwise the alternative actually is hell. And we don't want to labour on hell because nobody really likes talking about the topic very much. But Christ's salvation makes no sense without it. So let's not forget that alternative. So just to finish, my question for you is, what are you relying on for salvation? I think in the society that we live in, there are three good, useful things that crop up that we can be tempted on to rely upon to make sure that we are okay, we are safe, we are secure. They are our wealth, our relationships and our works. And in each one of them, what I said at the beginning can be said about these things. You know, cleaning is useful but not fully effective. Each of these things are useful. They're good. They're just not effective for salvation. You know, you look at wealth. 
we are bombarded with ads that tell us to secure our wealth, go and get a property, go and take this, this managed fund product, go and be, put your money in this bank account, go and buy this thing. And the reality is, wealth is incredibly useful. It gives us options. It allows us to be comfortable. And when you think of the, the, the 10 to 20% of society that are truly dirt poor, and you look at the options they don't have where they're trying to determine whether they'll pay their rent or buy food, you know that money is awfully useful, that it doesn't force you into those really horrible choices. Which good thing are you going to give up? Which necessary thing are you going to give up? Wealth's incredibly useful. But whenever I think about the usefulness of wealth, Steve Jobs comes to my mind. You know, he built up Apple to be the biggest company by value in the world when he left. But what is less well known is that he also founded Pixar, uh, you know, the company that made Toy Story and all those other fantastic movies that has, has put out this consistent succession of hits. Um, he founded that and then he sold it to Disney. So in addition to being the, in charge of Apple, he was the largest shareholder of Disney when he died. He was a billionaire. But when he got cancer, all the money in the world couldn't save his life. And when it was too late, he could not deploy any of those billions of dollars to go, look, I'll give you a billion dollars, just save me. Wealth will not save us or give us eternal life or make us right with God. You know, it's, it's like that lovely, uh, lovely joke, I don't know if you heard it, of you know, the guy who... Um, persuaded God to let him take some of his wealth with him. You know how you told you can't take it with you? This guy managed it. So he, he took his wealth in gold ingots and he took the, the wheelbarrow up to, up to the pearly gates and, he, and Peter said, oh, he said, I'm coming into heaven. God's let me in and I look, I've got one past him. He's letting me take this wheelbarrow of gold in too. And so Peter says, okay. Hey, Joe, another one coming in. He's got some, he's got some road pavers. He can be, you, got to, you need to repair that street of gold. Yeah, he's got some there. Road pavers. Wealth will not save us. I think the other thing that we can look to save us is in our relationships. If our life is not our, our wealth, then perhaps our life is our family. Perhaps our life is our mates. Perhaps it's the friends that keep us going. And let's not deny the fact that friendship's awesome and family's wonderful. I've no doubt that Jim and Kristen are relying on their family at the moment. Um, but family won't save you. And if there's someone who is a part of a family who could say family will, will save us, I reckon Kristen's in one of those families. Because this is a true story. When I was looking to, to build a house here, I was walking up Blenko's Lane and I saw this sign, Hotondo. And I saw right down the bottom, one of the guys was Brent Rurick. Now, I didn't know Brent Rurick from a, a, a bar of soap. Went, Rurick? I worked with Kristen Rurick. And she, her parents ran a conference centre around here. Yeah, no, no. If he is the brother of Kristen, I know what I'm dealing with. I know that I'm going to be dealing with someone who's... I know how they, he's been brought up, if that's the case. And so when we were in a position to buy a block of land and build a, build a house, the company we went to was Hatondo, purely because I knew Kristen 20 years ago when I worked with her at Crusaders. Aren't we all glad that accident didn't go sour? 
But if that accident had gone sour, would the fact that Kristen was born a Rurik and married a Wilson save her? No. Godly families, the both of them. That wouldn't change a thing. Our families and our friends are useful. Uh, they make life joyful. But they can't save us and give us salvation from sin. The other thing that we can look to to save us is, is the good stuff that we do. I remember my, my grandmother was suddenly diagnosed with cancer and um, given three months to live and, and while she was in hospital in one of her, her treatments I said, so are you ready to go to heaven? She said, oh, I think so. I think I've been good enough. And look, you know, she was one of the most godly women I knew. She was just wonderful. But I think good works are a bit like the furniture polish that you put on a, a, a table, you know, the, the stuff that you t to keep things shiny. That polish nourishes the wood. And I've no doubt that our good works nourish our faith. They, they encourage us in it. That furniture polish makes the table look really good and it commends the table. If I see a, a beautifully polished table, I think, oh, that's nice. And if I see it in a shop, I go, oh, that's nice. And then I look at the price and I go, oh, that's too nice for me. Um, because the polish helps commend the table or the other piece of furniture that you're looking at. It makes it look good. It helps you know, hey, this is high quality. The good stuff that we do commends Christ to other people. When people see what we do because of Christ, people go, oh, I want to take another look. Why is he doing that? Why is she doing that? I want to take a look at that person. And when we tell them it's because of Jesus, well, I want to take a look at Jesus. Our good works commend Christ. But we do those good works because we are already going to heaven, because we already have salvation, because Christ's sacrifice was sufficient. Let us trust in Christ alone, now through to eternity. And on that note, would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you we thank you that Christ's death was fully effective. Please help us to hold on to Christ through good times and through bad until Christ returns and we can spend eternity with him. Amen.